Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with both brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis today. And the reason we have a full house is because we are all extraordinarily excited about what we've just seen, which is the new Todd Haynes Velvet Underground documentary on Apple Plus television. And uh, I am going to spoil it a little bit by saying we all are thrilled with this. We were all looking incredibly forward to it, and nobody is disappointed. So let's just talk about that thing that we just saw. Yeah, I, I would love to, to start by, I mean, as, as like the least familiar with Todd Haynes, um, I, like what, what do we know about the, uh, uh, about the maker here? Well, Todd, Todd Haynes, I have to say, and I'll jump in first, um, you know, I go all the way back with Todd Haynes to, the, to having a, you know, an actual bootlegged VHS tape of the Karen Carpenter story that he made using Barbie dolls when he was getting out. I'm not sure if it was a student project or if it was just a little later than his being a student. I know I was in college when I saw it, and um, it was Ken and Barbie as Karen and Richard Carpenter, and it was an absolute work of genius. Um, From there, Todd Haynes went on to direct uh, Safe with Julianne Moore, which is one of the most petrifying movies you'll ever see and it's not a horror movie um it's about yeah. a uh, a woman who slowly becomes allergic to everything in her home and her life and then he did uh, velvet gold mine which is very much in keeping with this um I, my guess is that he wanted to make a fictionalized story about uh you know the velvet underground era and basically made a fictionalized story about Bowie and uh, you know Roxy Music era glam rock. Um, then he went on to do a couple of great Far from Heaven, of, yeah, Far from Heaven and Carol, which are, are sort of uh, dramas of manners rather than comedies of manners. Uh, very uh, stultifying views of what it was like um, to be gay in the uh, in Carol in the case of Carol to be gay in the in the fifties and then in Far From Heaven a uh, um, uh, biracial couple um, having an affair in also in the fifties a Douglas does ugh, Douglas Cirque adaptation so he said and then the last couple of movies he's done have been relatively straightforward commercial. Um, movies. I don't know how well they did commercially, but he did Blackwater, Dark uh, Water, Dark Waters. Yep. Dark Water. Sorry, I am sorry. Um, and um, yeah, that's kind of his resume. He's um, still eclectic in the sense that he came out of that like kind of late '90s indie boom, you know. And then he's right crossed over in the sense of uh, not crossed over. I don't know what you call it today, but he can kind of seamlessly go into. I think sort of pet projects and sort of more mainstream. I don't know if you agree there, Wynn, but that, that's kind of my take on him too. He's, he's kind of bridged yeah. the gap a little bit, which more people do today, but back then it was, I think, a little bit, you were sort of... And the, and, and the centerpiece of, the centerpiece of his resume is, is I'm Not There, which was the Dylan movie with multiple people starring as elements of Bob Dylan's persona. I don't know if you ever saw that. I, I did not, and I thought what was, um, what was really cool about this was, 
I mean, so one of the things that I guess is, is sort of like notoriously frustrated Velvet Underground fans, of course, and like I think also just made it practically difficult to to put together um, a good documentary is just the fact that there's like there's just not a lot of like live footage of them, um, and there's there's loads of Lou Reed, right? Um, <laughs> but but you know you are when you're thinking about uh, a documentary is like um, in its like at, at one level there's sort of it's, it's a curative process right like it's it's you are taking a huge volume of footage and often you are sort of if you're lucky down and, yeah. And, yeah 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 in, in a perfect world like you have you know everything to choose from and it's a certain type of like director maybe or a certain type of personality even um, who is really good at like sort of narrowing in on, you know, honing in on the story is sort of pairing, like, like funneling out the noise and, and sort of the stuff that shouldn't matter or the pieces that aren't that interesting or that are predictable um, and finding the sort of uh, the, the interesting, like, visual storytelling. And I guess what's cool about this is that, like, on the one hand, you know, there's so much, like, Andy Warhol footage um, and... Uh, there's so much footage of band members, but at the same time, like, it's just not a lot of, like, typical normal band footage. And so that's that's always just created, the, you know, you tend to hear, like, Velvet Underground stuff sort of soundtracked to Warhol's movies um, and not with a lot of explanation and not often, like, done very well, I guess would be my, um, uh, would be my assessment. And I think, like... In this case, it was really tastefully done. Yeah. Um, and it was, like, the mix of still and and motion picture, like, of interviews with the very small number of survivors um, of, of that era. Uh, and, you know, it, it just it didn't feel somehow, like, you might think that those different categories would feel really disconnected, and I didn't think it did at all. I thought it was just, like, like totally fluid storytelling, I guess. Well, I think one of the things that, you know, keeps it, you know, very much that way and keeps it um, cohesive is, you know, one of the, it's a, it very much took uh, the efforts of Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes is, is as a filmmaker, very much known as a stylist and, and has earned a, a, you know, very strong reputation as a stylist. And, and I think when he put together the, uh, you know, any footage having to do with this. He, you know, there was the footage that he inherited, um, but then there's even the, the modern footage that he has going into it. it. It all fits and is of a piece. And even the sort of triptychs and diptychs that he uses, the split screens and the multiple split screens, is all sort of homage to... Andy Warhol's filmmaking and the and the different right. styles he was using back then, so it does tend to meld very easily. That said, I the one thing I wanted to put out that I was most happy about in with this documentary is that there's ne- barely a mention of Andy Warhol until 57 yeah. minutes into the film, and to me that helps so much because this isn't documentary. This is a documentary about the Velvet Underground. It's not even about Lou Reed's solo career coming out of it or John Cale's future career or Mo Tucker's or anybody else's. Nor is it about, you know, 
the Velvet Underground's too. relationship with Andy Warhol. It is about this band, and as, as big a fan as I am, and as I know you guys are, like, I really didn't know the origin story beyond the kind of mythology that, that includes Warhol. No, not at all. I mean, I think you kind of, you guys both touched on a, a couple of things that struck me, but like one, you know, where Christian was saying sort of the idea of, of not seeing a lot of live performances or, or know the, the, you know, the band's sort of shrouded in mystery always, you know, and I think it's sort of like the Velvet mm-hmm. Underground to me, you know, is an experience. And uh, I think everybody has their like own weird intro to that experience in a, in a way where they like speak to, you know, they definitely like hit certain people. And I think when and I were kind of talking offline after I'd watched it and, uh, and just the fact that it's sort of like a line is drawn between people and it could be, you know, either side or people that you like and things like that. It's not like a competition or anything, but this band just definitely touches a certain type of person. You kind of know that like, no matter what, like that's your tribe to some degree when you hear them. And, but in doing that, there's, there's, you know, Warhol has kind of always been the biggest, you know, kind of, uh, most popular, most main, you know, well-known figure of that, that when people talk about the band, it's just all, it's, it's on, you know, their first album cover alone is iconic, you know? So I think that that's, what is his? It has his name on. Yeah, it. exactly. Mm-hmm. It, it was like Andy Warhol's <laughs> Velvet Underground, you know, and and I think um, Andy Warhol presents. I agree with you in Velvet Underground and Nico. Yeah, totally. On the on the other part, where it's just sort of like I was I was refreshed as well to like hear a band that like we have so much information, you know, on everything, and and you know, there's certainly Velvet Underground pieces in like Please Kill Me, or I'm sure you know like you know biographies of Lou, on Lou Reed or John Cale separately, whatever. But yeah, to get the story of, of like what they were like in college, the early years of Lou Reed working for the record label and, and pumping out, you know, 60s, you know, you know, nickel records and, and, you know, the ostrich and stuff like that and his sister, um, I thought was really awesome. And visually, too, I, I agree. And I, I did have the benefit of, of listening to the the big show. Or is that the... I always forget, want to call it the big reel. Is it the big show, the ringer pod? Big picture. Big picture, sorry. Um, with Sean Fennessy. And I, Christian, if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to that, I would... It, and, Haynes talks exactly about what you were asking about just footage and, and kind of using, um, you know, the Andy Warhol footage as kind of a base, but also letting the music kind of speak too, which I thought was really cool. So many rock interviews are, you know, just talking heads, right? Artists that talk about the band or, you know, people that were around it. And this really kind of was so visual compared to a lot of, a lot of other rock talks I've seen. It's funny because I, I think there's, um, there's like a, I almost have these sort of conflicting views because I think on the one hand, like he sort of decentered um, like the Andy Warhol parts of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and took that out of like the, you know, it, it took it off the front cover basically um, and said, okay, you know, how much do you know about like um, the fact that Lou Reed's dad was like a tax accountant? Mm-hmm. It's like what? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> like what was? I don't know. What was that relationship like? Um, and the answer is, it was boring, and his dad wanted him to become one. Um, or, or that John like, John Cale grew up in a monolingual household, where his father didn't speak the <laughs> yeah. native language. <laughs> yeah, I had no. Which only made his mean grandmother hate him more. Um, yeah. The fact that he learned English at seven. Did you start like getting flashbacks to your own? <laughs> Did you get a couple of flashbacks in there? Did you? Uh... Uh, yeah, it's a it's a good thing I got out of the valleys, just like him. Um, but uh, no, his I, I I okay. So like, for, from a narrative standpoint, I love the fact that it starts with a twenty minute um, 
discussion of John Cale because he's he's the he's the thing that makes the Velvet Underground not another rock band for me anyway. And I think some people would say that that's Nico's voice. It's a lot of things probably, but for me, it's it's it's. Oh, I think it's his influence, no doubt. And it's and like the thing that made it, the thing that makes the Velvet Underground and Nico such an unusual and like stirring sort of album for me I guess but like as a teenager was was definitely like everything I learned in this documentary about about the you know his his actual formal classical education in music um and and like what was really incredible was like knowing none of this and you know uh uh I I mean I like if I knew that he was classically trained I could have guessed that he had an interest in John Cage but like I couldn't have told you what I learned about the like about, about the drones right and and I think um that was such a it's just such a distinctive like hypnotic effect on on the listener that like it and, and so sort of like powerful I guess um but but the other thing that's like really interesting to me is is and the, the I guess like my f- first take and like the very first impression I had when I was watching this was I love how long the music parts are like I love how much of each song they play um, that like one of the most frustrating like ADHD things that I think like happens in these types of documentaries is that you get like and look we're guilty of it on this podcast too right um, like is that you know you get like ten or fifteen seconds of a song and like they would just let you sit with a minute and a half of a, a song like you know heroin or rum rum run because like you can't get the like the experience doesn't fully set in until you've heard it like loop a couple times. Mm-hmm. And like, that is the effect of their instruments. Um, I, like that's, that's yeah. I thought it inter- interesting too. I mean, the, the I like the, the length of the musical, um, you know, the interludes or, you know, accompaniments or whatever they are at the time. But I also, it took me a few minutes to realize that, you know, the, the shot on the right is not a still photograph of John Cale. It's just yeah yeah. Uh, it's a motion picture. It's a picture in motion, but it is not. He's not moving. Yeah, those were it's, cool. Uh, and and it's the it's and some I I couldn't tell if they were. I think they were the super, um, like the super. I think it was the super slow motion footage that, like, remember you see the couple kissing, um, about halfway through, and they they're, they they talk a little bit about how like this. Well, is that's one, a Warhol uh, film. Warhol's yeah. first. I think this was too. Mm-hmm. Oh, probably. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, yeah. Um, and I think it was just super slow motion footage of like, like John Cale sits on stool, like, um, you know. And but yeah, it's, it was totally. I, I agree with you. It was like such a such an interesting effect. Um, well, I, yeah. I I can't. It, it's like it definitely uh, sort of challenges and like. Um, I, I think sort of encourage like it, it plays with the senses a little bit um, in a few different ways that I think is just really cool for for a documentary like this. Well, I think one thing he he so I mean, and sorry, Christian, were you finish your thought there? No, no. I, I, let's definitely no, no, no. Uh, stick with this because I, I want to at some point like I want to talk about like our favorite characters in this too because that's like super high on my list. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, just one thing on the kind of music and visual. I think, too, the thing that was cool for me, or like you were saying, kind of learned when you were saying you learned about the early, like, formation of the band, which I dug, 
too. I didn't know all of those details, but um, just how important, like, in Christian, you were talking about the sound that John Cale kind of brought and how the first 20 minutes were dedicated there. I really don't, I like John Cale. I have some solo stuff from John Cale. I, I know his kind of, like, general history, but I, I didn't know his upbringing and, and sort of where he came from. But just how important they were to each other, too, like, in a weird way. Like, there was a, a you know, fierce competition and, and probably, like, some, you know, obviously anger at the breakup and things like that, but... But it was, you know, like, both, I think, saw, like, such insane talent in each other, too. Like, I mean, Lou Reed's writing for how young he was. Yeah. It's like, you know, that, I mean, that's the thing that kind of brought me to the Velvet Underground, the sound, for sure. But, like, those just lyrics, too, are, are, are really intense for a guy that age, <laughs> in that era, in 1967, you know? Um, oh, and, God, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, but that's, that's like, it's... It's it's in line with like the poetry of that era, or like the really uh, like the truly underground stuff. Yeah, right? it's, it's like really it counterculture of a counterculture, yeah. right? And then the other piece is like what you're talking about in the experience of like the the film and the split screen stuff. I thought he did an awesome job of like again, like you weren't there, and, and you know, but they do have like this is what like Velvet Underground Live almost was like. You know, it was really visual and and with all the weird kind of like gels and you know, um, movies on top of the band playing and stuff like Projection. that. Yeah. Which I thought was like, I mean, it almost kind of like boggled my eyes a few times. I watched, I watched it in, um, kind of later in the evening. Um, and it was like, you know, almost like made me dizzy a couple of times and, you know, they put the warning in the beginning, like you're going to have, like, if you have epileptic seizures, don't watch this warning to any viewers. But, um, but it was like, I, I don't know. I just thought Haynes really captured that, and I, you know, after again listening to that interview, I think it was very intentional. But he did a great job at it. It definitely like fra- it, it it paraphrases like the the music. You know, it reflects the music, right? Like it's it's creating like a new art form that that reflects this other media, and I think that's really like it's just very cool for anybody who's a who's a giant giant fan i will say i thought it, like you're talking about john kale reminded me that i don't think i've ever heard anyone who knew lou reed personally say anything nice about him um, other than we think he's massively right. talented yeah yeah brilliant but yeah. god that guy's a fucking asshole well, i think yeah similar comments as well that guy was supposed to be pretty rough to work with it was interesting to hear people and, say that so deep into his life too um, you know, yeah. they were like he, he was a deeply insecure guy, and he never wasn't. Yeah, yeah, and even now that he's dead, um, the nicest thing I can say about him is that he was an extremely good writer. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like oh, and he was oh okay. <laughs> but yeah, even even right. the Todd Haynes interview that Jeremy referenced before, he you get the sort of um, you know the the reason this was makeable at this point, and I don't know how deep or difficult the process was in that regard, but I know that Todd Haynes, if you had asked him to do this documentary 30 years ago, he would have done it. Um, so I'm guessing that there were yeah. some hurdles that he had to clear in order to make it, and one of the things he said was one of the major... Um, Sister? Uh, no, really, uh, one of the one of the main uh, issues that, that gave him the ability to, to, um, to make this was the transferal of Lou Reed's archives to is the New York Public Library. Um, oh, that's believe, awesome! And in out of the hands of Universal Music and Laurie Anderson, who was his uh, wife when he died. Wife, yeah. So, yeah. So the subtitle of this movie is "I'm Waiting for the Man to Take <laughs> Over the Archival Footage." Um, but I'm waiting, uh, for, I'm waiting for yeah. the municip- 
the municipal <laughs> library. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I think, uh, I, I think like it, it was, I, so John Cale also like, I thought, I thought it was cool. And I just, I wouldn't have necessarily expected such obviously like raw and recent feelings, um, about the, the breakup. I mean, but like the interview with him, I feel like if you'd interviewed him a week after it happened, you might have had pretty much, I mean, like, basically the same reaction that you have asking him about it now. And it's like, I just think that that's, like, a deep Mm -hmm. wound, you know? I mean, they also left him on the fucking roadside in, like, Cleveland or something, (laughs) right? (laughs) You're going to do it. I mean, it was like... as band breakups go, it was like Lou Reed uh, managed to fig- like you know quietly figured out who was on side and who was coming with him, and then just like told him to get off the bus. Excuse mm-hmm. me, told Mo to tell him to get off the bus, um, <laughs> which is like, and they did. I mean, that mm-hmm. was the th- th- there wasn't like more. They didn't stick up for him, um, which I guess tells you something about the, you know, uh, sort of the personalities. The, the, the solemn, like the solemn looks in all black wasn't an act. They were. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, I yeah. never. Um, that was good stuff. That um, the, the the sort of anecdotal stuff around going to Los Angeles and just being so out of place. And <laughs> I mean, it, it's tr- it's true though. It's like Lurie has become a, a, an icon of cool, but like uh, also a shorthand for I think dick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I, I think also when you like. You know, you, you you just sort of have to you have to sort of like contextualize that these are they're just fucking dweebs and like it's not they're not there's no cool factor it's just like it, yeah it's just so dweebish and then they make weird music that doesn't make any sense and it's it's like you you could very easily see um, I don't know you suddenly see them as vulnerable or maybe not vulnerable but like. Uh, you can imagine Insecure. how they could be like victims in an LA setting, as opposed to like the ultimate, you know, uh, sort of icons of like indie stardom, which is all they've ever been in in memory, you know. Yeah, but I think too that you know, there's you know, there's uh, some of that um, you know, sort of erosion of of stature and coolness is partially. Um, you know, given to the fact that we all hold them in such high regard, it's not as if they started as as peers and became and we discovered they were dorks. It's uh, we we had sort of elevated them to the point of you know godlike creatures, and and they yeah. probably were de- you know deescalated to to sort of normal folk. Well, it's just because like you know. Um, you could imagine people cutting in front of Lou Reed in line and him not really being able to do anything about it. <laughs> and, like, that's just a situation that, like, you know, suddenly... And you could also imagine that, like, some, you know, large, good-looking, like, blonde surfer guy doing that at, a, like, a bar in L.A. and him just being like, excuse me, excuse me, and then going home and just writing the meanest fucking, like, song you could possibly imagine about it. And, and I think, you know, th- I guess my point is that, like, they are ultimate icons of cool in, in, when they control 
the setting, when they control the narrative, when the footage is shot by Andy Warhol. And it's nighttime. In the factory. It's, it's, it is what, it, you know what I mean? It's like, they're the ones on stage, and hell yeah, they look cool. But the fact is, it's like, they're just dorks when they get on the bus. Um, and and I, I think that, like, sometimes, you know, sometimes just those juxtapositions can be, um, are, are just interesting to see, that's all. Um, and you realize that, like, this would be a really difficult person to be friends with. Um, so... Why don't we take a quick uh, listen to these dorks and, and then come back and, and talk a little more. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about Todd Haynes' awesome new documentary about the Velvet Underground. And two things I, I think, um, you know, we sort of have been discussing offline, and we can. I'd like to discuss both of them now. One is um, that this documentary sort of uh, encapsulates the entirety of the Velvet Under, Underground's career. Unfortunately, Doug Yule um, decided not to appear in it, but apparently Todd Haynes spoke to him uh, quite a bit about it. And the other thing I think is is that it was only it was limited to people who were there. Um, it wasn't there aren't fourteen, you know, very cool. Yeah, Steve Malcolm talking, talking about, about how, how much it influenced him, that type of thing. Yeah, it's it's really they don't really care how much the Velvet Underground inspired Miley Cyrus. No offense. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, so it, <laughs> like, they limited they limited the number of talking heads to a very few people who were able to experience this thing firsthand. So I don't know which one you want to. Sp- I want to ask both of you who your favorite characters in this are. But let's start with the music and talk about how again, um, you know, in much in the same that way that Andy Warhol casts a very large, long shadow over uh, the history of this band his, the album that the one album that he's really connected to um, sort of sometimes stands in for the entire catalog and and I think we all think that it that it shouldn't 
I th- yes, I think that's absolutely right. And, like, um, I, so tracing the, like, a, a sort of continuous line through the, per, like, the production of, of this group is really hard, though, because it's not just Andy Warhol's presence, right, which is which is quite literally about the packaging, um, which is great. Um, but it's, it's like, uh, and maybe the context in which they were um, uh, writing and recording, but, like, it's also, I mean, it's John Cale, and it's it's the fact that, like, Loaded is so much more of a, a Lou Reed album. And, um, you know, when you think about, like, um, Pale Blue Eyes or Sweet Nothing or Rock and Roll or any of that stuff, and you think about, like, Transformer, it, it just, they they are more connected It's the next musically. step, yeah. Um, yeah, it just it feels like a Lou Reed album, and and it is more one. Than one. Um, and I and part of that is just because there's this uh, overwhelming, like you know, force that didn't have maybe a counterforce, right? That didn't have quite this. That didn't have uh, an equally sort of power presence. Yeah. Um, yeah, to 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 sort of keep it keep it in check and and. Um, uh, and introduce you know new sort of um, musical ideas, but but I think uh, what's really cool about this is that it stitches together like a continuous path rather than seeing these things as just separate entities, right? Like there's like the Velvet Underground and Nico as like a standalone album, and then everything else, which is mostly Lou Reed. Um, it's it's really saying like the Velvet Underground is you know this this three album run and um, uh, and you know all of Lou Reed's stuff later is is solo artist material, um, and so I think what's interesting is that this is, on the one hand, like I think the documentary makes a good effort to show us that. On the other hand, maybe Doug Yule's absence kind of contributes actually to like it kind of undermines that effort um, because hearing from him might have helped solidify like the late era Velvet Underground stuff as, as being you know really part of the band yeah Jeremy we, knows a lot more about this than I do because and he brought he brought to my attention that I had completely forgotten there's a Velvet Underground album with no Lou Reed no uh, yeah <laughs> and no John Cale <laughs> Doug Ewell he was in Mo I think called Squeeze yeah in 73 it's weird it's I mean you can actually listen to it on Spotify not highly recommended. It, I mean, it's it's actually pretty bad, but um, as you would imagine. But like, yeah, it's weird, you know. I, I sorry, Doug. Pre-internet, I, I kind of like. I think just. I wonder how you were kind of introduced to them. To I'm curious, like I know how you probably were when, or I probably know, like in maybe high school, and and you know, a friend of yours who like cool music, and I think I was actually introduced from you and her sister Lisa um, to the to the you know nico album um but the weird thing is i actually in my mind only thought there was two albums forever and it wasn't until i was like in my 20s that i realized that like and i didn't even know actually that the Five. velvet underground self-titled was um was called the gray album until it's docked to be honest that's how they refer to it at least um but yeah i didn't realize those were albums i thought they were like sort of like so, compilations and things like that and, and i heard rock and roll and songs like that through jane's addiction covering it you know i, I didn't know that that was like a velvet underground song for a long time um, and I was happy to actually so, see these albums because to... it made me like, I was like, I, I love these records and I think they're great. And it was, it was like, kind of like a band, like finding big star later in life, but I'd already known the Velvet Underground as this, these two entities and then discovering like, oh wow, they, there's actually more of this, like amazing. 
But I thought the doc, like, I was really happy about that because I, I think they do get kind of, and for rightful reasons, like you said, Christian, but they get kind of, like, separated out for some reason. And I think I, I so, yeah, I, I incorrectly said it was a three-album run earlier. It was No, I get what you were getting at. I meant with to say delivery. it was a four-album four run, but, yeah, it's, so, I, just to recap, it was The Velvet Underground and Nico was, was the sort of inaugural mm-hmm. shot heard around the world in 1967, well, right? Um, and White Light, White Heat came out in 68. The self-titled album came out in 69, loaded in 70, which, by the way, is a pretty impressive less than two-and-a-half-year um, mm-hmm. uh, run. Uh, yeah, and then Beatles. squeeze. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, all of those are basically, prob- I mean, I, I think safe to say uh, pretty close to a perfect 10. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, squeeze is, um, is 1973. So squeeze is squeezed out. Yeah. I mean, uh, the other thing too, and I actually heard Han say this in that, that same interview, so to reference it again, but like, you know, by the time loaded, which gets, you know, sort of, it, yeah, there was a time probably where loaded was knocked, you know, a bit by like, he was not as cool. You know, it was just Lou Reed also just how much he loves rock and roll. And I thought the, you know, early cuts of the ostrich, the early hit, like was just totally that. That's another thing that kind of dawned on me as I was watching this was, you know, Lou Reed was a, a intense, strange guy who, who wrote, you know, very intense poetry and, and lyrics. Obviously, he wanted to be the fucking Everly Brothers. Yeah, he wanted yeah, to be exactly. Who like yeah. was just uh, like was really good at writing a rock and roll song, you know, with, like a really catchy like. Yeah rock song which is awesome you know and I mean I know that from listening to them but it kind of was like validating to hear that you know you're like yeah you're right Mm -hmm." you you also there's something that like and I think this is this is just a weird thing that has always struck me about about this band is that there's like a very very like slight cohort effect going on here where they're just a they're just that tiny bit older than the 70s bands and um so the stuff that they came up on listening like that they the stuff they came up listening to on the radio is Do just slight, like right. they did, yeah it wasn't the Beatles yet right it, and that was the thing and so you had you know the Beatles launched 10 million fucking ships in every direction and you know every rock and roll band ever was able to like think back on the time when rock and roll was already cool but these guys were kind of growing up at a time when like I don't know rock and roll wasn't that cool yet right it was pretty no, primitive Lou, Lou um, Reed is famously you know his favorite artist of all time was Dion and the Belmonts right yeah <laughs> which is such a weird um yeah exactly uh and not sure that that goes you know the other direction well, I think, I think but, it's the uh, I think it's the it I think no they're they're I think you know they were always you know they he he went out of his way always to um you know i think he produced some later era dion stuff but you know it the, they are the rock and roll equivalent of that you know thing that you told me jerry ages ago of you know tina fey claiming that 30 rock was her attempt to write home improvement right. um yeah. i think this was lou reed's attempt at writing straight ahead rock and roll and that's just how it comes out of his brain yeah. <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah and you know and and that's where you've got to think that like it's also just the perfect um uh it's the perfect sort of chemistry of of like luck and timing and the mm-hmm. fact that somebody might have been doing this kind of demented shit five years earlier um but there was no uh oh. you know there was no there was no factory well i think there is there is you know there weren't there were 
there weren't gay nightclubs to hang out in. And there's always like, somebody just, there to tell you that what you're doing is garbage. Um, there's no lack of people in the world that are that are there to tell you that what you've written, nobody will like what you've written or nobody will like what you're recording or whatever. And, you know, or it won't sell. And the fact is that if you, anybody in their right mind heard the Velvet Underground, they would have said, this is not going to sell. So I think Andy Warhol's attachment was pretty important because I'm not sure a lot of the shit gets, uh, you know, committed to records and, and really has the lifespan that it has if he doesn't lend his considerable, um, you know, sort of gravitas to the process. Well, maybe that's uh, that's a good segue into the um, world's best uh, 0.0 pitchfork. Oh, yeah. You. Um, good call was, on your part, uh, by the, the way. Velvet under- the Velvet Underground and Nico, um, described by <laughs> Cher... Uh, as um, it will replace nothing but suicide, <laughs> which is just like, which which was like it's kind of a throwaway like clip, but it was just uh, it was when they were showing like a couple of reels of like um, you know just the absolute panning that this stuff got by like musicians and people in the press. But I fucking loved that that line, and like you've got to think that she live to regret that or I hope so anyway I mean I, I'm sure you know she's a little she hipper like, than you think she's kind of she seems a little more in on the joke than uh yeah exactly than than you know um but it was just like <laughs> that's such a harsh that's, takedown yeah um, <laughs> if she had waited a few years uh, and the band suicide had formed it would make uh, even that more was sense. that was actually my that was my that was exactly my thought yeah um and, uh, but, but I, I just love that. Um, and then like, okay, so the other thing that was just like, the, that I've just had so much affection for here was, uh, was Jonathan Richmond and like, I'll let you guys take it away. Cause you've basically been, you know, his m- mega fan since, uh, uh, college probably. Since we right? could walk. Well, yeah. Cause it, there is a, there is a, a certain filial feeling as he is, uh, from Natick. And and the funny thing is, and and I will uh this is this this is how far back Jar and I go. Uh, one factoid that was no noticeably absent from this documentary and, and obviously an oversight was that the Velvet Underground played oh, yeah. their first ever gig at Jeremy's alma mater, Summit High School. Ooh, yeah, uh, right. Summit, New Jersey. I know, so I was actually test. waiting for that because it's been such a source of pride for most of my life. Um Go Hilltoppers. But yeah, Jonathan Richmond. I believe uh, Joe, Joe Harvard does mention that in the uh, 33 and a third um, book written about Yeah, it's in Please Kill Me, too. Oh, nice. Which is great. Um, Joe Harvard, Ford Apache alum. But yeah, the Jonathan Richmond was great yeah. in this. And uh, I think like it's funny, as you guys were talking about in the last sort of piece there, you were both talking about the um, influence. You know, it was... It's like nobody was influenced by these guys in, in real time, you know what I mean? Except for Jonathan Richmond, which I thought was like pretty yeah. awesome as well. Because well, share apparently. Yeah, share. Yeah. I mean, they were, you know, met Obviously, with disgust do by you Bill believe Graham. Is, a, is an homage. And everybody. <laughs> the else. Graham, the, sorry, the Bill Graham stuff was great. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and and the whole California trip was great. I mean, um, I hope you bomb you fuckers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just hated the, just hated them so much. But, um, you know, like my two favorites, I mean, Richmond is great and went on to kind of, you know, we all love Modern Lovers, which is a 
kind of like a weird Pride of Boston song, too. When you say when, I mean, like, Roadrunner oh, played at yeah. every sporting event in Boston. Yeah, they played, um, Road, they played Roadrunner after every Red Sox game. Yeah. It's, it's, but, but without without ever knowing a Oh, there's no clue. Yeah, without yeah, knowing no. a damn it thing just, about that band. Oh, no. It's like, I, I knew that guy was job. aping Lou Reed. No, oh, nobody yeah. hears it and says, you know, Jerry Harrison and, and uh, Dave Robinson, Jerry Harrison from Talking Heads and Dave Robinson from The Cars were in that band? Yeah, it's like a super so. group. No. It's, um, and then Jonathan Richardson on his own has gone on, and, and, and it's always like really fun and, and great to see live and, and just kind of has like a energy and, and enthusiasm. And, you know, even in the movie, just I liked when he did talk about the, the different genres. It's like deadheads, you know, like from it was around the time of their experimentation with like acid tests and things like that. Um, you know, businessmen or, you know, like geeks, you know, it was, just, it was just hilarious. Geeks like himself who were just obsessed driving the band around. And just how cool the band was to him. I mean, like, they, it was like, you know, he was such a fanboy. It was, it was the, like literally the only fan. And even though this band influenced every <laughs> band we like since, you know, which was great. It's so refreshing to see somebody who, like, doesn't have ego about admitting fandom. And, mm. and like, it wasn't just that he had, like, doesn't have an ego about admitting fandom. It's like, he's like, I fucking loved him so much. I used to just hang out around him. And eventually, uh, Sterling Morrison gave me guitar lessons. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, you know, you, you, it also just takes these guys off of, like, you know, their, their, the planet that they're on. Makes right? them like, human. This is another really humanizing thing. Yeah. Um, that they gave some, like, like pimple face, like, you know, 16-year-old kid guitar lessons because he, like, hung out enough. Um, and and that he was just like still sh- you know that he's still shell shocked by their by their like artistic contribution and it also just shows you that like you know for for like as uh, as normal a guy as Jonathan Richmond I think seems in many respects like uh, he just seems like he's sort of like he's he didn't have this like big burst of you know drug and alcohol abuse and then like sort of level out and now he's like burnt out he just seems like he's been kind of the same guy ever. like. I think we're, I'm going to feel the same way about, like, Ted Leo. Well, I was, yeah, actually, yeah, it's funny. They're very similar to me age. in the sense when I was thinking of uh, Jonathan Richmond's live shows, got, even though they're, they're kind of go- there's a goofiness to them and kind of a weirdness to them. But it kind of reminds you of seeing somebody like Ted Leo. It's funny, like, just conversational and, like, you know, that type of singer-songwriter. Joyful. Very normal. Yeah, happy, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's it. They're happy people, and that's the confusing thing that we're all trying to put our fingers on. Yeah, um, confusing. No, that's right. They're like, yeah. Happy well people adjusted. that are uh, who are intense uh, Velvet Underground fans. I think um, the women of the said, movie. I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Edwin. No, no, no. I was just gonna say uh, that um, you know the one, uh, the other touch point that other than the Summit High School thing is that um, the Boston Tea Party, where the Velvet Underground played fifty or sixty times uh, between you know sixty six and sixty eight or whatever. I mean, Jonathan Richmond saw most of them. Um, it was detailed in, in uh, it was detailed very well in um, Ryan Walsh's book about Astral Weeks, uh, the secret history of 1968. Um, but it is also where I buy uh, can now it, also a 7-Eleven that oh, during the pandemic got its beer and wine license, um, and uh, so now you can pick up a six pack and look up at the uh, second floor where. 
A, Led Zeppelin played their first ever U.S. gig, and B, the Velvet Underground played 60 or 70 gigs. So, so it continues to be a pioneering contributor yeah, uh, exactly. uh, to the quality of Wyndham Lewis's life. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's yes. great. Um, but yeah, I, I thought too, character-wise, like Mary Warnoff was awesome throughout the whole thing and really kind of gave you like a, I don't know, she was just, I thought really like a stirring personality in it about the band and about the Warhol scene and, and both some of the, you know, bullshit that kind of like people wash over today around that scene and also, you know, just the grit and, and stuff. I thought she was like, and really stole the show a lot of she was scenes, awesome. like time she spoke and um mo tucker and, and i loved blue reed's sister uh, was it meryl uh weiner is that yeah she was great and she was uh yeah they're both great. mo tucker was like classic i mean just such a contrast you know like long island like kind of tough um you know with this band and then um i thought meryl she's everyone's curmudgeonly bitchy aunt yeah, totally. It was, like when she was talking about the hippie stuff in the but, '60s, it was or in the sorry when they did California trip. I just the line just made me laugh out loud, and she was just sort of like, and I, I'm probably paraphrasing here, but it's something to the effect of like, I've never seen anyone give someone a flower and still not get shot. That's <laughs> <was> like nice. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hippies. That's awesome. Like, yeah, totally. She she like yes, way way too like concrete for that kind of stuff. Um, but I also love that she like, you know, basically went to introduce, uh, went to introduce a drummer. And I mean, she herself at that point could not actually, I mean, the legend is anyway, that she, she didn't play drums, which, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say that like musically, it's hard to make a case that that's not true. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I didn't realize she didn't uh, play drums on, on the third album that, that actually was news to me and, and I would think that I was it was loaded I know, wasn't it or was it the third album too was it loaded yeah, I think it's just it loaded album, she didn't but, play on yeah cause she okay. sings the song yeah, which loaded, about, which is like, great um and but like again. what a, again again what an asshole Lou Reed <laughs> like yeah. uh, we're moving forward with this because she's like eight months pregnant oh yeah <laughs> like oh yeah, sorry we have the studio time booked too fucking bad like, and she was on, candid man. about like, yeah, I was, I'm pissed that I didn't get on. I wasn't on that album. You know, it was it was cool. I hope I, she suitably blames her first child. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, I've actually never um, listened to her solo stuff. I don't know if you guys have, but apparently it, it's. I'm going to too, and yeah, I'm, I'm definitely now. And and but her drumming too, what a unique sound. You know, it was like it was really pretty amazing. Um, you know, like for somebody well, Nico also everything was yeah I and mean, yeah, it all fit together it's a weird I, puzzle but I've always kind of thought of Nico as a joke and I know that's you know whatever but I just not as a joke I love her voice and I love that album and, and I even like as a gimmick. the solo album but yeah it's kind of like a, a you know a sort of stand in and, and you know there was obviously that was Andy Warhol's plan but just to hear how kind of like serious she was too I thought was great I mean there's a portion where Jackson Brown kind of was talking and and just sort of, you know, sort of sticking up for the fact that she's like, yeah, she didn't want to, like, fucking play in a plastic bubble. She wanted to actually sing and, like, play music, and it was pretty serious about it. I, I think the the interesting, like, I, and this is where I, I sort of, I, I don't know, I, I, I end up, like, lionizing John Cale's contribution to this so much in the same way that I, I think it's actually not that dissimilar from the way I feel about, like, um, 
George Harrison in a lot of respects is like yeah you've got like the guy who writes the punchy pop songs who's just like who can just spit them out really well but I think what Kale did was like look whatever the hell Nico's voice is it can also be an instrument anything can be an instrument and like you know so sure you don't know how to play the drums and I, I like that at one point somebody described like Sterling Morrison's like yeah he has these like really cool like planned guitar solos and I was like he's not that good at guitar <laughs> right like in the greater scheme of things here like given the kind of talent that we saw on stage in the decade after or for that matter decade before um it like he's not blazing trails here with like his virtuoso playing so um as, as much as I love the style and, you know, as you guys know, it's, I love everything about this, but I do think that, like, there's something... It's it's about, like, arrangement, and, and it's, it's about, it's, like, the, yeah, the sort of orchestra. It's, it's like, very much right? the, the sort of uh, same kind of place that Joey Santiago yeah. fills in the Pixies. Not a great guitar player, but great at making sounds with a guitar that are appropriate for the band that he's in. And And what I'm... It, and I think what I'm saying about Kale is that he's like he's like a he's it's the Brian Wilson esque effect of like just bring me these sounds and like I'll figure out where to put them mm-hmm. like I you know and and he's just that's the like mental map that he's got for all this stuff and it's like it's just really cool um, the, the and, Bill Belichick I, I, of, I, of music sure if you had to put it that way yeah um, uh, but I, I think <laughs> like he's. Sorry, I just cut that. <laughs> that just goes away later, right? Like that's the that's the thing that you don't have. Um, yeah, the, the, the gray and album and so. loaded would not be. I think they would be as standalones. Like if there wasn't Nico and White Light, you know. Even though I actually like the gray album, as a listen, I listen to that more than I listen to White Light. Just, um, but I think if you. Um, took the, those sounds away early on, like that the Velvet Underground would never have, have had the impact like without John Cale that it had on, on music in general or, or later music. It's, is it, I don't know if it's Brian Eno, the quote, but it's like, you know, that famous quote, blah, 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 like 500 people bought it and they all started bands or something. Um, yeah. You know, and it's true though. <laughs> it's like yeah. everyone who listened to this music, there's like a weird, <laughs> it's super complicated because of Kale and, and the tones and the, you know, I, I also learned a lot, you know, things that I'd heard before, you know, about some of that, like, and I heard it more through like Thurston Moore, you know, like the um, Dream Syndicate and, and kind of experimentation and stuff. It's just nothing I'm, I'm really drawn to, like listening to, you know, ringing tones or the, you know, when he's talking about like the hum of a fridge was like the perfect thing to build off of. I think it's interesting and cool in anyone's mind that can work like that, but like, that's way out there shit. And he kind of brought it into a pop sound more than you thought. And obviously Lou Reed being dead and John Cale being the, the talking head here, you're getting a side of the story that I think none of us really heard prior. And I don't think most people have, but it is going to be, you know, a little bit slanted too. But I think uh, just you're right on in the sense of like, that music just wouldn't sound like that. You know what it would sound like without him. It's loaded and transformer and, and which is amazing. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I had, I had a picture in my head, like there there was something different about this and I couldn't necessarily always put my finger on it. I thought it was probably John Cale and this kind of John Cale off substantiates the, the, (laughs) you know, it, 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 yeah, supports the case that I guess I was already making to myself, but like, I, I, I do, I, I will say that, like, um, the the one thing that I thought was pretty funny was that Sunday Morning was obviously written uh, as, like, a, a 
like counterpunch to Monday Monday. <laughs> um, I, I don't know, if, like, which I, I didn't fit together previously, but I also distinctly remember taking the, um, like, cellophane wrapping off the CD, uh, putting it in, and, like, having very high expectations for hearing something that I'd heard was very weird, and having that be the first song and being like, what mm-hmm. the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not... I think like, we all had that this experience. Is, demos. This is an avant-garde, god yeah. damn it. <laughs> but I, do you, I feel like we all had that experience with Over Underground. I, mean, I don't know if you had that being the oldest here, but I definitely did. Definitely. It was like, you know, I heard all my favorite bands talk about, you know, nobody didn't mention the Velvet Underground and I would see the posters at the record store and just the, you know, iconic banana and it's like, oh, that is going to be, like, it was scary almost and just to hear it be like, uh, I mean, I, I love Sunday Morning and loved it then, but like, yeah, to hear it be like 60s pop, you know, I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and even, you know, like, yeah. I mean, it does get weirder, but like, it, it just always had, a, that's why they balanced out so well. I mean, it just always had a bit of accessibility too, at least to certain years. I guess not at the time. So with that, should we? Uh, Did we take like a break it? And, and come back. And <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Yes, well, let's take a break uh, and let's play. Um, let's play the ostrich, and then we'll come back. Okay, I want everybody to settle down now. We got some new we gonna show you, man. So I'll knock you dead when we come outside your head. You get ready. Brother, brother, brother. Today we've got the full lineup, uh, Christian Wynn and I, and we just had a blast talking about the VU doc by Todd Haynes, which we all um, give a uh, enthusiastic thumbs up to. A uh, really great documentary. But uh, sadly, we're going to end this conversation um, and go on to something more, which is how we always end this. So um, in order not to get punted to, I'm going to kick it over to Christian. Christian, what are you listening to? Wyndham. Wyndham, I think it's your turn to put something on the, uh, or tell us what you're listening to, rather. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I have been deep in Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen, um, which I had mentioned, I believe, before, but um, yeah, I, I think um, in terms of what I am watching, um, I have watched the Velvet Underground documentary a couple times, and... Um, God, what else have I been? Oh, I like the. I really like uh, Blue Bannisters, the new Lana Del Rey record. Um, that's good. I think that's really good. Black Bathing Suit, particularly good song. And I'm hoping that on on second and third 
um, listens, it'll grab me even a little bit more. There's also, I listen to the new Parquet Courts and uh, um, really like... I haven't gotten uh, there. Good. That, I like it an awful lot. I think it, it you know... I'm not going to say it could be their best, but I do think they keep getting better and more consistent. So I will, um, you know, the two singles were were candy to anybody who likes parquet courts. And there's a weird um, kind of, I'll, I'll talk about it next time, but when I've lived with it a little bit longer, but I, I really highly recommend both of those records, Landed El Rey and uh, Parquet Courts. And I will punt it now awesome. to Jeremy. Yeah, I uh, good album choices. I too have been listening to the, to the Parquet Courts, which I really dug, and um, and I listened to Lana Del Rey this morning. I actually texted you that it, it's really good as well. Thanks. Um, what I've been listening to. So in the spirit of October and Halloween, I'm gonna go backwards in time. And uh, my um, oldest daughter was at a sleepover, so I was with the younger one, who's kind of like a she's like typical youngest, like super obsessed with just anything older and horror movies has been an ongoing kind of like request. And so, um, it, we went like, obviously I'm not doing like, you know, Halloween and stuff. So we did uh, poltergeist last night, which, uh, <laughs> still like a pretty good movie. The effects were a little dated. Definitely wasn't happy with the choice. Um, on her end, she liked the movie, but not as, it wasn't scary enough, but, uh, I gotta say like, uh, not bad. And, um, and then other than that, yeah, I mean, I've been listening to those two albums when you kind of nailed both, but you would, you would kind of said they were good before um, via text, and that is what I'm doing, watching. So, Christian, what about you? Uh, I watched the first episode of Succession last night. Um, oh, I actually ended up watching I that, had too. Lo- oh, wait, season three? Or, sorry, so season I one, like- didn't mean to cut you up there. Uh, season three. Yeah, yeah, I watched it, yeah. Um, so I liked season one. I thought it was, you know, like clearly it had been an idea that had sort of been long and, you know, it had been planned out well and there was a story to tell. (laughs) Um, and, uh, they hadn't run out of story yet and then not been able to find more of it. Um, which I think is definitely sort of what this is suffering from now. Um, but I think, you know, this is sort of going to be a, uh, a take that will sound familiar to anybody who listens to or likes Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan and uh, you know over at the Ringer, which is that like a really important part of any show is that you sort of you need to want to go there um, and like you need to sort of want to be in their world uh, for an extended period of time and like um, I I just it's like that was certainly true of this like sort of stylish make believe version of of high powered you know. Um, ultra-rich New York, and I think it's maybe the spell that that casts over me is kind of fading a little bit, um, because now it's just sort of seems like, uh, it's like, you know, yeah, well, let's write, like, X number of, like, witty insults a minute that the siblings will say to each other, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it just, it, it just seems a little, a little thin, yeah. Um, so, I, I don't know, that's, that's maybe my, um... Not so. Uh, I will. I will say that the, the first the first episode of any season has the the you know particularly difficult task of you know including everything previous viewers and also welcoming viewers who maybe are starting on that season. So it's it's they're never fun. 
but at the same time, uh, you know. Has anybody has anybody learned that the best shows don't fucking care yeah. about that? <laughs> I know. I know. But guess like that all the famous ones, like all of the best shows in history are just like, we're going to assume you're along for the ride. It's time to go. Yeah. <laughs> like I, we've I left think, actually. Uh, you, I bet if you went back and, and, and really, you know, looked at the transitions. The first well, I mean, and also, I mean, when you're, when you're talking about the wire, the wire was probably going to get canceled every season. So they probably didn't know they were getting renewed until after. So they had to end the season <laughs> with some level of finality. And yeah, I also know, I know I know that I know that feeling as well. So yeah, you do have to you you know, unless you are succession who was renewed for multiple seasons, they actually didn't have to do that, but they uh, apparently chose to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is uh, in a in an other you know, in, in a desert of um of new television as well um mm. so the other things I, I heard about though that uh so i guess ozark comes back in january which will be cool um maybe you know it's like that's that's a pretty good group uh and i would like just being back with the characters and the actors so which i don't one? really like ozark uh ozark ozark yeah and, and white lotus got um, renewed so that's good yeah yeah um Although that won't be until next summer, right? Right, but there's another one that didn't know it was renewed, so they actually closed down the whole shop, and now they have to figure out how to reopen it. <laughs> um, and the other... Oh, what's the, um, like, Sackler Purdue Pharma epidemic? Uh, like, okay, oh, Dope Sick? Oh, Dope Sick on who? Yeah. Is that supposed to be good? I haven't seen it. I... I, I feel like know. I would have heard um, more I, I, about I, it if it was, but yeah, Michael Keaton. It's got I like. a pretty like, it's got a pretty um, good cast. Put it this way, like expensive, you know, uh, cast. Um, it, Rosaria Dawson's in it as well, um, and like, I think is it Kiefer Sutherland? Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, yeah. Yeah, but are we sure he's not? Okay. Well, anyway. Um, I, I haven't watched it yet, but uh, I was kind of interested in checking it out. Um, I, I'm with you though. I, I sort of I think my skepticism was only like fueled by um, maybe thinking that like you know the people would have spoken and I would have heard about this show. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. Well, so do you want to throw a song on the uh, five million four hundred thirty thousand ten best songs of all time list, Christian? Uh, sure. I'll put on I Know What I Know by like Off Graceland. Off who? I'm sorry, I didn't hear who the artist was. Uh, off Graceland oh, by from Paul, Paul Simon. Simon. Cool. Oh, wow. Nice. Interesting choice. Jer? Um, I'm going to go shoegaze with a ride and the song Like a Daydream. Nice. And I am... Damn it, I was listening earlier and I, there was something that I didn't think was on there that should have been. This is uh, where our listeners get to listen to us <laughs> over our phones and, yeah. <laughs> and figure out what we recently uh Fuck it, I'm going to put on all tomorrow's on. parties. <laughs> Do it. Cool. <laughs> Somebody had to. <laughs> Eventually. 
All right. Well, good. I'm going to go watch we, the... This is where we prove the conceit of the show, which is that if you ever ask somebody what they've been listening to, they it don't clears your brain. know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I um, am... All right. I, I'm going to go watch the documentary again. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.